Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 13th, 2019. This is episode 2489 of the Survival Podcast. And it's going to be kind of a special show today. It's definitely getting started later in the day. I had to put a lot of thought into this one. Not research, but thought. Today's show is called Dealing with Life's Transitions. Today, I, I was thinking about a lot of things when I got up. One was a friend, a very close friend, who's dealing with a major life transition right now. That got me thinking about many of my own transitions. This included realizing that, you know, on my own, that I was on my own as a teenager. By the time I was 15, head to 16, I realized, like, I had to just take care of myself and get away from my family at 16. Um, joining the Army and leaving the military to move to Texas. So the, joining at 17 and coming home at 20 and still being really young. Um, I thought about how I eventually got my what I thought was my dream job and then moving my family for it and then losing it due to a buyout. didn't really lose the job initially as far as having a job, but lost the job that I took. It was just taken from me. And, and, and within 30 days of having it, all come together. I thought about my son growing up and leaving home. I thought about my journey where I, I moved to Arkansas and had to move back to Texas and, and a lot more. I thought about some of my lost friends, people that died way too young, like my buddy Hal Dodd, who, who died at only 41 and, and looked like he was in the peak of health. I thought about some failed relationships, friends that I drifted apart from and you know, romantic relationships, specifically one, a, a woman who I was engaged to and, and how awfully that ended and how that felt. And I am a person that believes somewhat in what you call synchronicity. I experienced far too much of it in my life to not put something into it. So I wasn't surprised today when the most recent issue of all things Self-Reliance Magazine was on my counter because it came in the mail and my wife set it on the counter in the kitchen for me so I would see it. And in her words, usually when a new magazine comes, either read it or get rid of it or at least put it away somewhere. And I opened it, and I, I, as I often do, I, I turn to the back um, of the magazines and see that final column that's there. Usually they're some of my favorite, going back into the days of outdoor life in the 80s. I think of Patrick E. McManus and his, uh, his, his humorous articles at the end. Well, with, with both Backwoods Home and Self-Reliance Magazine, you often find uh, these commentaries from people like Dave Duffy. And Dave is a person that I consider a personal friend. We've had a uh, relationship online for a long time as, as, as you know, sponsor and um, he's basically my customer. But I've met him several times in person, and I've read his work for almost 30 years. And he had an article today called Reflections on the Gift of Life. And knowing that Dave's quite a bit older than me, I'll be honest, the first thing I thought was, uh-oh. So uh, when I, I started skimming the article and I, I saw right before his list of things he wanted to accomplish in his life, I'm now 75 and healthy, so I still have some time left to work on my list. I was a, a bit relieved. But when I looked at all this together, I decided that it would be a good idea to deal with this topic of transitions in life. You know, Dave there is dealing with a transition, realizing you're 75. I don't care how good a health you're in, you know, in the best case scenario, you probably have at most 20 years. I mean, most people don't make it past 95. Some people do, but 
you know, you're, 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 you're way down that path to where there's less days ahead than there are behind. And just realizing that is a transition, realizing that you're middle-aged like me, you just turned 47, you go, ah, a lot of years left ahead unless something terrible happens. But, you know, you are kind of over the, the hump of the middle. Uh, people that call middle-aged 50, I don't know how many hundred-year-old people you've met. So there's all these types of transitions. Some of them are very specific to an event, and some of them are just a realization. Like, it already happened, and you just didn't think about it. And... What I've really thought about today was how many people I've met from this audience who've had to deal with things like loss of family members, loss of friends, PTSD from military service, or just 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 having a hard time coming out of service, uh, even if it's not directly PTSD, divorces, uh, and, and job losses, and so many things. And so many of them have told me that TSP has been so good for them. I've met so many people that have said, and I, 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 I shudder to say this out loud on the air because it sounds arrogant, and it's not. It's said with the deepest humility and honestly some real sadness that some guy with a microphone can be this for somebody instead of somebody that's there with them is I've had so many people tell me, literally, you have saved my life. The fact that you do what you do and I get I have something that I can grab onto out of that message is a piece of what made me hold on. Uh, like I said, it, it, I, I don't like saying that because it sounds arrogant, like I'm so important that you know I've saved people's lives. No, I, I, it's humility because, my God, it's just a podcast. But if that's what it is for people, there's a reason. And I think the reason is because it's real, and what we talk about here is forward-looking. Tomorrow, not yesterday. We learn from yesterday, but we do for tomorrow. And with that in mind, I decided to do today's show. A little bit of a change-up, kind of in the lifestyle design realm at this point, full on. And I think that there's always somebody out there who really needs to hear this message. And today I think I need to talk about this message. So that's what we'll be talking about today as soon as we get to it. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is Western Botanicals. Um, I have always turned to herbs first whenever I can. Um, and it's, it's always been a good decision, at least in my experience. The problem with the world of, world of herbs and supplements and all of that stuff is that there's so much snake oil out there. So when I found Western Botanicals and they wanted to be part of this show like almost, almost nine years ago now, um, I was so happy to have a company I could work with that I knew I could put my name next to it. I knew they would never let me down. I knew they would never say something that was ridiculous, you know, the, the coral calcium cures cancer, some stupid crap like that, that they would always take care of my customers because they, they, they always did a good job for me. They've been a loyal sponsor now for almost nine years, and if it's herbal and legal, you'll find it at Western Botanicals, and everything there has either been uh, organically grown or wild-crafted. Check them out today at westernbotanicals.com. Next up today, Bulk Ammo. Uh, somebody just wrote me about Bulk Ammo and said, hey, is there something wrong over there? Uh, I was on their site and using my discount, and I noticed that they were really thin on a lot of stock. You know why? Because there's two mass shootings, and now they're talking about doing more gun control measures. And what have I said? What have I told you guys? I've said this for so long. When they start talking about grabbing guns before guns and magazines start drying up, ammo does. That's what's going on right now. 
So this is a good time to stock up if it's available. But keep an eye on things. I know those guys work really hard over there. If something's out of stock, they'll be getting in stock again as soon as they can. But this is why I recommend bulk ammo. Lighting fast shipping. Bulk purchases. Shows up on your door almost instantly. And you don't have to leave your house so that you can keep that ammo stock high. Because, again, when they start talking about grabbing guns, it's the ammo that flies off the shelves first. Check them out today at bulkammo.com. With that, let's go ahead and jump right into this. So what I want to start out with is kind of the Dave Duffy article that, I don't know if it made me choose today's topic, but it definitely pushed me over. Like I was thinking about doing this, and then I read this article. I'm actually going to read Dave's article to you. Uh, I guess it's supposed to be for subscribers to Self-Reliance Magazine only, but I think Dave will forgive this as I put this out on the air and give him credit for today's episode. And again, I... I think Dave is just one of the most God-honest, wonderful people I've ever met. He's done a lot to help a lot of people uh, with his words of encouragement and words of wisdom as an author over the years. So here's this article, again, called Reflections on the Gift of Life. For most of my life, I felt that just being born was a lucky break. Of all the possible encounters between men and women who ever existed, my mom and dad got together one night and made me. If it was, uh, it was before birth control and abortion were acceptable in a Catholic household, which was fortunate because I was the fifth child of a poor Irish family living in a Boston slum. The family joked that I was my father's deferment for military service during the final year of World War II. I was in my mid-twenties before I began showing my appreciation for what I often referred to as my gift of life. I'm not religious either, so I don't interpret my gift of life to divine intervention. I basically believe in science, especially physics, and I keep up on the latest theories involving quarks and electrons. The chances of me existing at all are very rare. Yet here I am, a sentient being given, being given 80 or so years to explore a living creature, being a living creature. I decided to work hard to show I deserve life. I became an optimist, learning to look at the bright side of everything, even failures, and I began to li list of what I wanted to accomplish before I blended back into the world of quarks and electrons. Here are the goals I set for myself. Some I've achieved, others not. I'm now 75 and healthy, so I still have some time left to work on my list. Become a good writer. This was my major goal when young and has defined my life. I had some natural talent, but it took hard work to develop into a marketable skill. I began by enlisting in the United States Army on condition they sent me to journalism school. After three years as an Army journalist, it was an easy transition to a civilian newspaper reporter, then a technical writer-slash-editor for the defense industry, then a book author, and finally a columnist for my own magazine. I worked hard at each stage, and I still do. Build my own house. It wasn't big, but simple and practical and full of mistakes. I found that houses are very forgiving with small mistakes, blending in quite well with the overall project. Building it made me feel like I could do pretty much anything. Start my own business. I started several, but it was not until I combined my primary ability, namely writing, with the entrepreneurship that my own business, Backwoods Home Magazine, flourished. It made working for a living way easier, more secure, and it paid better. I talked to my four kids frequently about starting their own businesses. Sam and Annie took over the magazine when my wife and I retired, so they're on a good path. Become self-reliant in everything I do. This is a work in progress. I've started my own business built my own house. Two key ingredients of self-reliance. I'm handy with tools to keep chickens, and we grow some of our own food. But we're not nearly as self-reliant as many who read this magazine. 
learn to speak a foreign language. Well, this will have to wait for another lifetime, and quantum mechanics says another lifetime with the same quarks and electrons is indeed possible, but that's a column for another time. I do know some German, but cannot converse in it. My wife speaks Spanish, so that's as close as I'll get. Travel broadly. I never did this. The Army sent me to Germany, but I was too poor or busy to visit places like Florence with its Renaissance paintings, the incredible ruins of Pompeii, or the Roman Colosseum. I traveled to them only on the Internet, but I did travel broadly in America, promoting BHM all over the country at various expos. Learn how to play the piano. This will also have to wait until another lifetime. I tried when I was young, but I think I may simply lack the ability. Fortunately, my wife plays beautifully everything from Bach to the Beatles, so I did the next best thing, bought her a baby grand for our living room. Bring in my own firewood. This may seem rather mundane, but not to those old-timers like me who also use wood for heat, using a chainsaw and an axe are refreshing tasks, ex exacting in their need for precision and safety, and a superb exercise. I have three chainsaws and about a dozen different styles of axes and pride myself in my skill at the chopping block. Learn how to shoot a gun properly. I like most good tools, and guns are exquisite tools. Handled correctly, they're not only safe, but empowering. They are fun to shoot, put food on the table, and serve well for home and personal defense. I consider my guns and my proficiency with them a statement about my belief in the U.S. Constitution and the Second Amendment. I am part of the armed militia that safeguards America's freedoms. Give generously to others with my time and money. I've always done this. At one time, BHM had 10 kids enrolled in its college scholarship program. It might as well be a law of physics that the more good you do for others, the more good comes back to you. Most people who help others get rewarded somehow. Learn to play golf. It's a difficult game that I'll never master in this life, but I keep trying. Golf affords you the opportunity to meet the whole world at their best behavior. Even young hotheads quickly learn that golf is not a sport, but a form of meditation and reflection on the beauty of the world. Settle down with a woman I really like and treat her so well she really likes me back. I succeeded at this, and this made everything else better. The triumphs are greater, and the setbacks less harsh. Coming out of this for a second and speaking as myself here, yeah, I did too, Dave, and it is the best thing you can do for yourself as a man. Back to the article. Have some kids and see the world through their eyes. This was enlightening. My four kids are sort of like me and my wife, but mainly they are way different. Sometimes they think their quarks and electrons came from another universe. Uh, just speaking as myself again, Dave, that's absolutely possible, if not probable. Next, do everything with passion. I've been accused of being a workaholic and being overzealous, but the truth is I've merely sought to make the most of my brief moment in the sun. I'm satisfied. I've done well enough. This is my list. Unremarkable, and I haven't explained it much, and I haven't expanded much on it now that I'm retired. Becoming a better golfer is now my main pursuit, and I practice nearly every day, Dave Duffy. You know, things that seem like they're not that big of a thing could be a big thing, and we'll get to that in today's article. But when I read that article, it made me think that, yeah, this is, this is what I need to do today. This is, this is definitely what I need to talk about. So I just want to real quickly go over a few of the things in my life that I see as major transitions. And as I said at the beginning, one was realizing, and I was 15, but it was just a couple of weeks before I was 16 that I acted on it, where I realized that my father was going through, like, just basically losing his mind, going crazy from the divorce with my mother, uh, and going through a midlife crisis, because he had, he had worked seven days a week for over 10 years, and decided, since his whole life was falling apart, go ahead and run with it. 
and my mother was just being horrible in this situation. She was addicted to drugs. My grandmother was certifiably insane by this point. Um, and I realized that the only thing I could do was find a place and take care of myself. And when you're doing that, this is one of the things about transitions that I wanted to talk about today. When you're in the shit and you're basically struggling to survive and you have something that you need to get done to get through it, whether it's some kind of legal proceeding, filing paperwork, or you know, if, you, if you've lost a loved one and you're making arrangements for them or something, like when you have something to do, you don't realize how much it's hitting you. And when you get through the part that has to be done into the part that is the dealing with it, well, now, now it hits you. And I have to say that, you know, I was like, I'm on my own, I got things my own way, and it wasn't a great place, but it was a place, and it was mine. And then, you know, kind of the first couple nights when you're there and you realize, I can do whatever I want, but I can't even hang out with my friends because they're all at home with their families. They're not allowed to be out this late, even at my place. Well, yeah, it hits you, and you start to realize, like, I'm on my own now. And I joined the Army at 17. I had to reach back out to my dad, who I'd kind of walked away from, and say, I, you know, I, I want to get out of here. I, I, I need to get out of here. Like, I knew that my life could not develop the way that it needed to if I stayed in, in possible Pennsylvania, in Minersville, Pennsylvania. Like, I couldn't stay there. Things were starting to go really wrong there. And, and I realized that some of the things I was involved with, that if I continued on that path with no real future, I would probably end up in jail. I never did. Um, had a few run-ins with the police, but nothing ever really that serious. But I realized, like, it will happen. i got to get out of here. So I had him sign for me, and I joined the Army at 17. And I joined for about three years. And so by the time I came home, I wasn't even 21 yet. I was a few months from my 21st birthday. And I went from being this kid that didn't know what the hell was going on in the world and just wanting the hell away to having this really interesting life, but I also knew that life wasn't right for me. I was not going to be a career soldier. Um, having some good parts of my childhood and having good grandparents was part of that and having uh, a grandfather who was 30 years retired from the Army, I knew how the Army worked, and I had set myself up that if I had decided I wanted to stay in, that I was in the right place with things, with the job I took and, 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 and test scores where I could transition later and quick promotions and all that. But, I mean, I think I knew halfway through basic, I'm really going to enjoy this for the, the time that I'm going to be here, but then I'm done. And, and definitely by the time I was, you know, a year into my first duty station, and had a, that at that point, you know, I'm, I'm like almost down to a year left. It, it was almost like doing time in, a, in jail, in a happy jail, right? But like, okay, I'm going to, that's what we actually used to say is I'm going to do my time and get out. You know, it's the same phrase that people use when they're in jail or short-term prison stints. And six months in Honduras, man, that was a lot like a work prison. Um, again, a pretty happy minimum security one, but, I mean, surrounded by fences and guys with guns and, yeah, very limited freedom and, and working six days a week. Yeah, so when I came home, as many of you know that listen to this, I ended up walking – uh, a section of the Appalachian Trail from from central Pennsylvania to uh, northern Vermont and uh, finishing up in the presidential range up there of the mountains and, and then deciding, okay, I've done enough, and, and then coming to Texas. 
And, you know, I've, I've talked a lot about my past with you guys on the air, but I think maybe one of the things I gloss over is how dead-ass broke I was when I came here. When I first came to Texas, my first job, I say six bucks an hour because it just rounded off, but it was really $5.90 an hour. First job I had here is $5.90 an hour. I worked in a warehouse for a company called Home Interiors and Gifts. Um, in order to cover like my half of the rent and the bills to stay with my buddy. Because, you know, to me, if I'm going to stay in somebody's place, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull my weight. So basically, I covered half the electric bill and half the rent. And uh, that ate up half my paycheck, which wasn't very big to begin with. And a lot of the stuff that I, I talked to you guys about um, with cooking, if I hadn't done that, I don't know that I would have that skill set with cooking. I've gotten to be kind of an advanced cook, but a lot of the ability to be really creative with things came from you know going to the store with 20 bucks and having to be able to eat for a full week or more and then wanting to eat well. And so you know that was a big part of things changing and, and transitions going on. And, and that was you know over a period of only about five years, all that shit happened. And I finally got a really good job, actually an okay job, and then a little bit better of a job. And then I got my dream job. And then of all places we had, we had to move for it, I moved to Pennsylvania. And then the day, I'm, I'm telling you guys, the day the moving truck showed up and dropped all our shit off, and the movers brought all the stuff into our house, and then the movers were finally gone. And we had tons of shit in boxes, and I hear my wife with music playing, quietly so I can do my job, but it's playing, and she's singing, and she's opening boxes and putting stuff away, and she is happy even though she made this huge move, and she left her family behind in Texas for me. But we have this new house and this new opportunity, and the phone rings, and my boss says, our biggest competitor just bought us, and I don't know what it means. And now I've got to walk down the hallway and tell my wife, who just moved 1,500 miles and left her family behind for me, that the job that I just took is basically gone. I was able to keep um, keep employment for another three years, but I never really had the job. I never really had the job that I took. The reason I was willing to do it, it was gone. Along the way, I've lost some really good friends. Going all the way back to high school. One of my best friends in high school. And I got along okay in high school, but I didn't have close friends. And this was a guy that like... We constantly hung out in school, but we just didn't hang out outside of school. So I never saw him that summer of my between my junior and senior year. And, and two days before we went back to school, he put a gun in his mouth and blew his head off. That's hard to deal with when you're 16, 17 years old, living on your own. And one of the few really good friends you have kills himself for no apparent good reason. None. This is before the days we had all the problems with bullying that we have today. It went on, but nothing like that. It, and he was never bullied anyway. This is a kid that everybody loved. A wonderful outlook. Flash forward almost 30 years later. I did a, a podcast on this when this happened. Because I had to to help process and to share with you guys. It was called Lessons in Prepping from Hal Dodd or something like that. Maybe I'll, I'll look that show up and link to it. But Hal was one of my best friends I've ever had. And 
he was a fishing guide at a lake called Joe Pool here in, in Texas, where I used to live down near Arlington in Mansfield. And there was a day I'm sitting in a, a, a restaurant with my wife, and I get a text message, and it's from his wife, who somehow just, fig- I mean, dealing with her own crap, right? Assumed that I knew and said, would you come to Howe's Memorial tomorrow and say a few words? You're really good with words. I didn't even know he was gone. I didn't know anything was wrong. He felt dead. He was 41 or 42. I don't remember exactly. But younger than I am now. Went out for a jog, called his wife, told her he loved her. He was feeling great. He was looking forward to a great day at work. Closed the door and collapsed. When she opened the door, she had to push him to get in the door. It was a transition for me, but boy, that was a transition for her. And in the time that was going on, you guys were listening to the show. You knew what I was working for if you're, if you're a long-time listener. I was going to get to Arkansas. I was going to get to Arkansas. I started this show. I still had a J-O-B. A year and a half later, I walked away from it. And my goal was to get to Arkansas. We had a property up there. I wanted to move. I wanted to get out of the city. I wanted to live in my mountain home. I got my son grown up, got him off to college, got him an apartment, got him squared away, sold her house, moved to Arkansas. It was two years of magic, but it was a big change. You know, it seemed like a great idea, but I remember sitting and thinking a few weeks after we got there, I'm not going to see my son for another 30 to 60 days and realizing how much that hurt. And my wife took it way harder than me. But we adapted, and we had something we never had during that time. Time to really be us. And we weren't the typical married couple that married and got together after dating for a while and then got our first place and moved in together and then eventually decided to have children. Matthew, who's my son, but is you know legally my stepson, was almost seven years old when I met her. We had never had that time alone, and we had that time alone. But things started to go south with her father's health. And I could tell just being this far away from the rest of the family, it was just killing her. And my son found a, a, a woman that he had a serious relationship with. All of a sudden, we were going to be grandparents because he was taking on a son of his own. We knew that there'd probably be at least one more coming down the line, and there is now, and she's three and amazing. So I had to take that place that I worked so hard for about six years ago now and give that up and come back here to Texas. And in all of this, let me tell you what I've learned. Inevitably, if you go into it with the right attitude, the next chapter is always better. In there, there was a relationship that I glassed over during the intro, just mentioned it briefly. But I'll tell you, I was in love with this woman when I was a young man. 22 years old, I guess. And I had dated and been around with a lot of women. I didn't do relationships. And this one made me, I don't mean made me like forcibly, but just her presence and who she was made me give it a chance. To the point where we ended up living together for a while, we were engaged, we were going to get married. But the relationship really quickly grew toxic because she was dependent and needy in ways I could never fulfill. 
And I eventually had to get to a point and say, this is not working, this has to end. And even though that had to end, that had to end, I knew it had to end, and when it was over, I was like, oh, thank God. But you know, there was a few weeks later that went by, and I remember the first time I woke up, and after spending your night in the same bed with somebody all the time, when you wake up and you reach out, And they're not there. And anybody that's in a relationship knows, like, if they got up to go to the bathroom, they got up early, you're like, oh, and he, but there's, like, this hollowness. But then when you realize, like, that person's not coming back, no matter how bad they were. But look what I have. Look at my wife. Look at my son. Look at my grandchildren. One of the things that was the most painful led to the best things. And what I find in, in all these transitions... And there's only one that I can't speak to, and that is dying. Because we don't know. We have Some people have different ideas and different faiths about what happens, but we don't know. We can't know. And I've learned to let go of what we can't know. But in all transitions, otherwise, the next chapter brings something amazing and often better. And I think that has a lot to do with what I call the mindset of transition. And I, to me, there are four keys to the mindset of transition. And number one is you can't change yesterday. You can only learn from it. You can look back with regret on the mistakes that you've made. You can look back and think, if I had only done this or I'd only done that, including mistakes that cost you. Not just mistakes that, like, you lost an opportunity, but mistakes that you make with someone that costs you a relationship, whether it's a friendship or a marriage. Like, there are things that you will do, and you, or you could do in your life, that can destroy a relationship, that no matter how repentant you are, it can't ever go back. The other person has every right to choose to not forgive you if you're wrong. Likewise, you have every right to choose not to forgive them if it's in your best interest not to do so. At least not forgive them to the point of reconciliation and letting them back in. I think that in any instance, that if you want a better life for yourself, you have to forgive. But forgiveness and reconciliation are different things. There's things that my mother did that are horrible. I forgive her. But... She's still that person, and she doesn't get to be in my life. Don't feel bad for me. See, I'm okay with this. I've gone through that transition. Another big transition for me was, honestly, when I was very young, talking like 11, 12, somewhere in that range, when my grandmother uh, on my mom's side passed away. That, to me, is the day my mother died. She was the stability. She was the one that raised me. She was the one that gave me an anchor point in this world that just otherwise would have sucked for me. I spent way more time at her home than I did in my own. And when I look back at the, the, the tragedy of my childhood, I'm just so grateful it was the 80s, where 90% of my life was under my own control because that's how it was to be a kid back then. There was always good even mixed in with the bad. But through it all, When you get to certain points, and now I have to move forward, you've made a decision. You can't change it. You've made a mistake. You can't change it. 
It will always be with you, and hopefully, if it was a mistake, if it was the wrong decision, you'll make better ones tomorrow. But all you have that you can change is the next day. And that's the next part of this. Number two, whatever control you have exists today and tomorrow. It might seem like the same thing, but it's not. The past is what we need to let go of, and the present and the future is what we grab onto in making these transitions and these changes. It's the only way we can cope. And here's the good news. If you can pull yourself out enough of whatever's tearing you up, whatever's holding you back, whatever's pulling you down, whatever's making you depressed, whatever's making you sad, whatever it is, if you can pull yourself up just enough to move, just enough to move, The human mind is wired to this rule, to understand that it controls today and tomorrow only. Your mind knows this. You have to think about it like if you ever served in the military where you're going through one of the courses, one of the, like the, the, the endurance courses, and you just feel like your arms are going to fall off and you can't make it. And even though it's only another hundred yards, there's two more obstacles to get through, and you just, you can't. But if you can just move, if you can just move, all of a sudden you're over one of those two, and then two of those two, and now you're even more tired, and you're even more in pain. But as long as you can move, there is a finish line, and there is rest, and there is something else to be done. That is what it means to understand that you control today and tomorrow. That all you need to do is move in the right direction and you'll find your way. On that, you focus, this is rule three, focus on what there is to be done and on what you can do. You are going to realize that there are a lot of things you want to do, but you can't do some of them. So you focus on the things that you can do now. Because that leads to just moving, which leads to the acceptance of not being able to change yesterday and in learning those mistakes and going forward. And last, so that all this actually happens, you set goals. You make some of them relatively easy and then get off your ass and get on with them. It's amazing what happens when you do that. You know, I mentioned the, 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 uh, the relationship that ended and how hard that was. And I remember being in like this, this fog. And it was weeks after it actually ended that it all hit me like a train wreck. But I remember being at work. At the time, I was a contractor for Lockheed. And I did optical fiber work. And I remember thinking, I need to put a breakout kit and 24 connectors on the end of this piece of fiber before lunch. So I did it. I let myself get lost in that work. It was on some levels like an art form. Fiber optics, when you get into terminations, is kind of art-like. There's a way that you strip out this, this small piece of glass and clean it and an epoxy, and it slides into a connector, and it has to be just right. It's glass. It'll break if you do it wrong. Then it's cured with a UV light. And then the end that sticks through has to be cut off with a diamond blade. 
that has to be polished in this motion that is a figure eight. And it's a lot like sharpening a knife. Like you could show somebody how to do it in five minutes, but to get really good at it, it takes time. And your hand makes a million little corrections by what it feels. And you're doing something that's microscopic, even with these big motions, but yet you can feel. And I'd pick that thing up and I'd look at it in the microscope and, oh, there's that one little spot. It's not quite right. Finish it up. Look, ah, oh, there it is. Put the cap on it. Then after lunch, the other end of this cable has to be terminated. Then I have to test it. Then you'd test it. When I test it out, you realize I did something that's difficult and I did it well. And that's why I'm paid to do what I do. Now it has to be hooked up. Now these circuits have to be brought over to it. And then there's another one to do. And that was focusing on what needed to be done. That really wasn't so much of a goal. But during that time, I started making goals for myself. Like, you know what? This job's okay. And when I was you know, heading down a marriage path this young in my life, and I had so much time ahead, and a two-income household and all, and they probably would hire me full-time if I stuck around here, yeah, that kind of path kind of worked. But looking at it now, that was never right for me. I'm meant for something bigger, so I need to find my path. That led to all the things you guys that have been around a while know that I did. Making that decision, they're setting goals. But some of those goals were like, tonight when I go home, I'm going to make chili. It's an easy goal to accomplish. Set some easy ones. And reach out into the world of creativity and things that other people have done to gain from them and to... Put yourself into perspective. I'm going to give you guys four resources. Some that will seem to make a lot of sense and some that won't. Um, with getting your mind right with dealing with transitions. The first is two books by the same author. And I kind of feel like they go together. And I just featured one of the books on the item of the day not long ago. And it's Jonathan Livingston Siegel. And the other book is called Illusions by Richard Bach. Both by Richard Bach. Jonathan Livingston Seagull is the story of a seagull who wants to be more than a regular seagull. And he learns to fly in ways that no other seagull can fly. To fly like a, a falcon or an eagle. To dive deep and get the sweeter fish instead of living off scraps. He's ostracized for it, but he picks up students. His students develop the same level of skill, but not quite to his level. Eventually, he transcends the barrier between life and death and discovers it's just another level, just another place to challenge himself and completes that journey only to find another one. But his students, who he's left behind, continue to teach others. And illusions is the concept of what if someone that was like what we think of as Jesus showed up in the Midwest in the 1960s, 1970s America, and flew airplanes. Richard, in this book, writes sort of autobiographical that he was flying biplanes in the farm country, charging three bucks a ride, comes behind, uh, upon another person doing it, never saw another person doing it. man's name is Donald Shimoda. Donald is the reluctant messiah. And they go on journeys together. But what you really learn in these two books, you can take them fully, literally, if you want to. They're fiction books, even though there is some autobiographical stuff and illusions. 
But the main message is that we create our own universe for ourselves. And one part of the, the book, Illusions, Richard and Donald are talking, and Richard says something to the effect of, you know, in our world. And Donald kind of just looks at him with, like, what are you crazy? Like, don't you know? I thought I taught you better than this. You know, and I think there were like four billion, three billion people or something like that around back in 1971 when this book was written. He said, don't you understand that if there's three and a half billion people in the world, there's three and a half billion worlds? We all create our own world. And in these books, there is some level of a thought form, you know, being actually real. But those thought forms are real to us. A lot of the obstacles are nothing but thought forms that we can cast away if we choose to. Those books are both great. They're not going to help you directly get over the death of a loved one or something like that. They're not that kind of a book. But they will help you change the entire way you look at life. The next is another book, and it's called Conversations with God by Neil Donald Walsh. And while some in you know organized faith have taken this book as like their own, uh, Neil Donald Walsh is very much a not an organized religion kind of guy. But in the book, he writes a letter to God in one of his lowest points. But when he finishes the letter, in his head he gets an answer to everything he said, and he continues writing. And it is just a fascinating way of looking at the world and understanding our place in the universe. And this is one of those books that has a movie. And the movie in some ways differs from the book. In the movie, it begins with Neil Donald Walsh on a stage doing a speaking engagement because this book was a massive success. You know, I'm talking, you know, the the daytime circuit of talk shows back when it came out, Oprah Winfrey level success. This was millions and millions and millions of copies of this book sold, changing people's lives in in, in many ways. And he did do lots of speaking because of it. But at the beginning in the movie, he's doing one such event, and somebody basically yells he's a hypocrite. Because he left his family behind. And in the movie, he says, you're right, I did. And it, it goes back to that time. And he basically walks away from his house with some camping gear, goes off on his own, and lives in a park as a homeless man. And he scoffs at an offer of food when he hears that it came from the garbage. But about a week later, he's sitting up against a dumpster, eating half a sandwich he found in a clamshell in the garbage, bawling his eyes out because he realized what he's fallen to. He ends up working as a DJ, and that's when he writes the book. And the book is wonderful for what the book is, which is, the things that God has to say and the answers that God has to his questions and the understanding that these are his answers to his questions. So maybe your answers will be different because, well, God cares about you too. The movie is less that and more his story. And I think both of them are equally valuable. And the movie's available on Amazon, on Amazon Prime. So if you have Amazon Prime, you can watch it for free. I have links to all this stuff in the show notes today. The next one's a movie, and it's not serious at all. It's kind of an action-adventure comedy. 
but it's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's starring the late Heath Ledger, and it's called A Knight's Tale. And it's one of the first movies like it ever done. While it's completely set in kind of the medieval times period, um, it has modern good rock music in it. I'm talking like, you know, um, We Will Rock You uh, by Queen. Music like that blended into this this movie. And the the main concept of this movie, though, is a young boy who has no future other than being a thatcher, which is a person that does roof, you know, thatches roofs in, in medieval England, is sent off by his father to be a squire for a night because a man can change his stars. And I won't spoil the movie for you if you've never seen it, even though it's forever old, but let me just say a man in that movie changes his stars. And to me, that, that message really always hit home for me. And I love that movie for that that alone. Plus, it's a good movie. Um, because that's what I did. Young kid from the coal region. No real future. Right on the edge of being in trouble with the law. Turned into a multi-six-figure earning professional. So much so that he was able to walk away from that build a lifestyle design business like the Survival Podcast to make a living with a microphone on his own terms. There is no path from there to here without dozens of transitions, and some of them had to be painful. The last one is a book that really, I think, deals with the, a lot of these issues at their core in the right mindset and dealing with them, and it's another book that was just a massive success. Um... It's quite old now. I, I, it feels weird to me that all of these things I'm telling you guys about are really old. Cause they don't seem like that long ago. I guess the Richard Bach books are back from the 70s, but all the rest of the stuff's from like the 90s, and now that's a long time ago. Um, but it's The Way of the Peaceful Warrior by Dan Millman. And Dan Millman's books are great. Um, Finding Your Life Purpose or something like that is another great one, but Way of the Peaceful Warrior is where to start. That book really talks about the fact that you do need to be a warrior in your life that you do need to fight in some ways for the things that you want. But the wise warrior is peaceful. That's all I'll say about that one. But those are four specific resources, really five, because there's two by Richard Bach, that I think that really, if you're dealing with transition, if you'll take those into your life and, and learn from them, You'll get lessons from them. I never will because the reason I like each of them is they speak to you about your issues and your situation and your future. They're not generic and all you need to do is. Because anyone that says all you need to do is has not walked a mile in your shoes, does not understand where you're at because they can't feel what you feel. I, I think one of the things that we have to understand is even the person who has been through the same thing, doesn't know what it's like to be you. If you're a person, for instance, that's lost a child, and you lost a child that was very young, say five years old, horrific experience. If you meet someone who also lost a child at five, even under similar circumstances, you're going to have a certain bond with them, and you're going to understand each other way better than I can understand what you're going through. 
but you're still you, and they're still them, and your child was still your child, and their child was still their child, and there were different people as well. The circumstances weren't exactly the same. The place you were in life wasn't exactly the same. The way you dealt with isn't exactly the same. Only you can fix you. Only you can fix you. Only you can choose how you take the past as you instruct yourself on how to live your future. You're the only one that can do that for yourself. And that's why I like these books. I want to talk a little bit now about some things that make me let go of the past and be in the now. You know, Dave said that pretty much his retirement's dedicated to being a better golfer. And that's a hard, I can't understand that. I don't like golf. If I want that ball in that hole, I'll put that ball in that hole. I said one time to a guy that's a pretty good golfer, so you could put that ball in that hole from 300 yards, but I can hit that ball at 300 yards. And how I like my guns, you like your golf, I understand that. But that's the thing, like I just said, it's different for everybody. So here's five things that really make me appreciate the now and the fact that I can still fog a mirror and that I'm still moving forward. Number one is my wife. I can't leave her out of this. She has to go first because she is. And the reason I even say it that way is I know that there's some of you that the transition you're going to deal with is losing a wife or a husband. Well, then some dude saying, hey, my wife's so great, like that doesn't help you. But maybe it does. There was one big failed relationship and two lesser failed relationships between me realizing that I was ready for that and me meeting Dorothy. Those failures had to come or I could not have this. Let me be clear. like I didn't just have to have them fail so I didn't end up with that person. I had to have that relationship to alter my course just enough that her and I crossed paths met each other, spoke to each other, and we both happened to do it at a point where we were both in the right place to start a relationship that's now gone over 20 years. If I had met her six months earlier, when she was closer to her divorce, it wouldn't have happened. If she had met me two years earlier, before I really got my shit together, even if she had been clean, divorced, whatever, it wouldn't have happened. It had to be that moment, that way, just like it was, or it wouldn't have worked. It literally could have happened a few weeks prior, and it may not have worked. Who knows? Everything that went right and everything that went wrong had to happen the way that it did for that to come. So even if you're dealing with that loss, something is coming that's better for you. Of lesser thing, but something that's so big a part of my life is gardening. When I look at a plant and say, I took this tiny seed and I gave it this condition that was right for its needs, and I cared for it, and it sprouted, and it grew, and I took care of it to the point where now it is flourishing. And it's either that it's something that's beautiful or it's something that feeds me or it's both. I realize that when we do that as humans, when we, when we realize our potential as horticulturists, we are truly co-creating 
the world that we live in with however we view God. And I don't consider that arrogant. I think you can be the most humble, God-serving person in whatever way you see that, whatever faith you have. Because you can see it is that it is part of why you are here. That is your charge. That is your duty. Instead of tearing things down to create. And what is more creative than actually giving life and nourishing life? And that's what gardening is to me. Fishing. This is a big one. This, for me, is probably what golf is to Dave. So much so that I started kicking around the idea one time of writing a book called The Spiritual Fisherman. It's one of those books I don't know if it will ever get done, but I did write the intro and I'd like to share that with you now so that you can understand what I mean when I say fishing puts me in the now and the tomorrow and makes me let go of the past. And this is from something that I've written and played with called The Spiritual Angler. And it's the introduction for it, if I ever actually complete it, called A Perfect Moment in Time. All spiritual pursuits speak of a mystical connection, various different ways of experience that exist, but the commonality is the same, that at some moment you feel everything is right, connected with all that is, and apart from yourself, as though you have become one with everything, and yet apart from yourself, as though you have dissolved into the universe itself. Again, each spiritual discipline has its own way of describing this, but all of them have some version thereof. As an angler, I've experienced such things with rod and reel in hand, and in other natural pursuits as well. But it is one in particular that inspired this book. I call it A Perfect Moment in Time. It was some years ago. My wife and son and I were vacationing on Sanibel Island, which is one of my favorite places. I awoke about a quarter to six in the morning and carefully exited our room, leaving them to their sleep. I went down to the Gulf waters and looked west across the Blue Sea. Calm was an understatement. The water was pure turquoise and as calm as a lake on a day with very modest breeze. All I had to fish with was dead shrimp, but that was fine. The fish were on. Tons of different fish were feeding in the incoming tide. I caught a few whiting, a speckled trout, and a few small jacks. Then I noticed a group of fish feeding about 35 yards out. Instinctively, the rod went to 10 o'clock and forward to 2 o'clock. The bait carried only by a quarter ounce of lead peeled off the line perfectly, landing about 10 yards past the feeding fish. A quick retrieve kept the bait up high, and instantly something hit it. It clearly wasn't a big fish, but it was very energetic. At first, it came up just enough to see the mirror of shining silver, looking like a tiny tarpon. In my head, I said, ladyfish. At that moment, it was fun, but nothing special. And then I saw something that will forever be something I wish to see again. Almost as much as a drug addict chases the first high, never to find it again. The sun was just high enough to highlight all the ripples in the water, as though a million specks of glitter were being lit up at one time. Then the fish broke the surface in a wonderful way. Tail dancing about ten yards laterally across the water, now only twenty yards from me. It looked like a diamond-encrusted snake as it danced, its tail barely touching the water. A few seconds later, she jumped again, and as ladyfish so often do, spit the hook now only 25 yards from being or 25 feet from being landed. And you know what? I didn't even care. Honestly, I was happy for the fish, which I would have released anyway. That one moment, that five seconds of that fish glimmering like a shining jewel across the water, with the line illuminated by the sun, invisible like a silver thread connecting the rod tip to the fish 
was absolutely perfect. In that moment, the line ran through the rod to my hand and connected me to everything. The fish, the water, the sun, the sand, the other fish, the birds, everything. And I were a single thing. It lasted only 30 seconds in time, but it now lives in my soul and shall for as long as my soul lives. There is, of course, the potential that someday I may have an equal or even higher level experience. Yet to me, the important thing here is this experience that some quest for so highly with various spiritual ideology simply found me multiple times with no effort through the pursuit of fish with hook and line. This is often true in nature. I must admit I've had similar experiences in hunting, specifically archery hunting, that seldom involved the game I was pursuing. Yet there is something special about fishing that transcends all others in my view. I really think it is at least in part the connection between the angler and fish. One thin line, easily broken, connects man and fish. Each is simply being what they innately are. Man the hunter, the predator, and the fish, who much like man is really both predator and prey in its fully natural state. The bait or lure is in the water. It is retrieved or drifted or simply tight-lined. There is a bump, a nibble, or a full-on strike, but at some point... The hook is set, the rod bends, and the battle is on, and all seems right with the world. The, the mortgage, the news, the argument with a co-worker, and a million other things, they are all gone, and all that exists is the angler, the fish, and the bending rod, and one thin line connecting them. And I really wish I could have someone like, you know, Morgan Freeman read that, because I'm a pretty good speaker, but I don't do real good reading text. Um, when I when I listened to that after I recorded, I was like, man, I could be better, but I'm just going to have to let it roll. But that's how I really feel that when I'm fishing, you never know exactly what's going to happen. That anticipation of the future pulls you into the now. And that's one of the ways I've gotten through a lot of transitions and a lot of pain in my life. What is coming tomorrow? With fishing, it's what's coming in the next five seconds or five hours. You don't know how long it's going to take. But you have to pay attention. And sooner or later, that battle is on. And this one may just be a little bluegill or a little whiting if you're in salt water. Or it might be the fish of a lifetime, a bucket list animal, like some of the ones I had the good fortune to catch this last year when we were just on vacation this summer. Or it might be a stupid little ladyfish that gives you a spiritual high that no drug can, can, can come close to. Cannot begin to explain what it means to me, to you. I can only attempt it feebly. And you need to find what it is for you that does that. What is your true passion? We talk about passion relating to entrepreneurship and business a lot here. But there are passions that are passion for the sake of passion alone. I will never be a fishing guide. I don't want to. I don't want to corrupt that thing for myself with any objective other than being there and doing it. There are things, not a thing, there are things for you that are like that. Find them and make them part of your life. Another one for me is the stars. This is something that Dorothy and I have committed to, to doing very, very soon. Getting the hell out of here and going somewhere we can see the damn stars. Picking a time when there is no moon and the skies are clear and going somewhere 
where there is no light pollution. I've been listening a lot lately to Joe Rogan's podcast with Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson, both where they're on there together and both where they're on there alone. And one thing that these two guys keep coming back to, and those that haven't heard of them before, these are guys that are into geology and archaeology and looking into our past, uh, going back 10, 12,000 years and more, and seeing the past differently than science says it is, understanding that there were advanced civilizations. Now, we're not talking about you know, like the Jetsons version of Atlantis or something like that. We're just saying that there were people that were here that were far beyond what we think of as hunter-gatherers long before what we think of as the advent of civilization. And there's really good evidence for that. But one of the, the proof points that they, they constantly go back to with all this megalithic architecture, all these things with alignment to stars and constellations and stuff like that, is that we are separated from that. We don't understand it anymore because of light pollution. That if you were a person that existed 10,000 years ago, no matter where you were, no matter what kind of civilization there was or there wasn't, on a moonless night when there were no clouds, you could not help but observe that you yourself were floating in the cosmos. And if you've ever seen stars like it, first of all, you haven't, you have to go do it. You have to. I'm talking about where when you stand and look, you couldn't even begin to count the stars in the sky with a clicker. You couldn't do it. It's not possible. It's not doable. And when you look at the edge of the Milky Way galaxy, it doesn't just look like a cloud. It looks like it's almost like some sci-fi crap from TV. Like, that can't be the way this guy really looks. It does really look that way. And when I take the time to go somewhere where I can see that, and I sit there, I awe at how insignificant I am in the total of the cosmic world. And then I realize how amazing it is that I actually have so much ability to influence things. To help people feel better. To help people achieve things. To plant a tree. That I actually am a co-creator in this cosmos. And as long as I can breathe and as long as I can do something, I have no business wasting two seconds on lamenting the past. Especially once the lament has led to the lesson that you derive from it. Once I've learned that lesson, there's no more time for that. It puts me in touch with something I tell my wife all the time as she laments getting older. When you were 40, you wished you were 30. And when you were 50, you wished you were 40. Both times you were wasting time lamenting something that you would only wish you had the opportunity to do again. That's the world we live in. That's the reality. We either wake up to it, or one day we wake up and we are 80 or 90. We go, damn it, I let it all go. I didn't make the most of it. You want to get put in touch with that? Go somewhere where you can see the stars. I think... During my hiking period of my life, that several months, 
the most healing thing. Were the times when I camped and there was no one around me. And the woods were dark. But they're not quiet, are they? If you've ever been in woods like I'm talking about, there's crickets and frogs and cicadas, noise. But it's the kind of noise that doesn't, it's just, it's beautiful. It's like music. Sitting somewhere like that, laying back, looking up at the stars, and knowing I am floating in this cosmos. For six months, I was in a place in Honduras, in the middle of nowhere, called the Aguan River Valley. Our elevation was so high that most days when we looked down into the valley, you were above the clouds. Everything was dusty and dirty, and in some ways it was a very lonely place to be, surrounded by 500 people and yet being so alone, and just wanting to finish it and, and to go home. But man, those stars... Those stars were everything. Last, the forest. If there is something more healing than a forest, I don't know what it is. One of my true mentors in life, Jeff Lawton of permaculture fame, has said the forest is our greatest teacher. I completely agree. When you're in, and I don't mean woods, I mean a forest. I mean an actual flipping forest. I mean where if you if there is a road and there are some cars on it and you can hear some road noise, you go a couple hundred yards in and all you hear is the sounds of the forest and even that is muted. When you're in that, you realize the forest isn't a collection of living organisms. It is a collection of living organisms that makes up a greater living organism, singular, that you are now part of, that you have now been nested in, been engulfed in, and in some ways become one with. This mindset can get you through any transition. That's why I want to, you know, I heard like about warrior hike and all where these these people are actually organizing the type of experience I had when I got out of the military and, and, and setting up a program so that when soldiers come out of the military, that that's the first thing they can go to. I was so impressed with that. And, you know, way back when I got those guys on, on the air here and said, hey, I want you guys to know about this. Tell people coming home about this. That's a big transition, man. Coming out of the military, I don't even care if a person's coming from war or what. It just, it's just such a different world. It takes time to adjust. But I want to be clear as I finish up here today. I'm not saying any of this is easy. I'm not saying any of this is you can just listen to what I have to say and it's just going to be better. That's not how this works. It's a process. And there is, in almost every major transition, five stages of grief. And I think as we mature, we can skip bargaining. But I think we have to experience the other ones. We're going to have some level of denial in most things. We're going to be like, this isn't real. Or we'll deny that it hurts. 
Like, these five stages come from learning about dying, that you're going to die, being given a, a, a terminal prognosis. So in that, it's like, it's going to be all right, I'm going to make it. Even when, like, no, you're not. So we might think that we don't necessarily have to have denial. I mean, if you're having an end of a relationship and you're the one who chose to do it, you're not going to deny that the relationship's over. But you might deny that it's actually painful and that you're actually angry about it. And at some point we have to get over the denial, and usually what comes next is anger. And anger is something I think people don't even really understand what anger is. Anger is shielding. Anger prevents pain. It's hard to be in pain and angry at the same time. We kind of only have the ability for one or the other. right? If we're mad enough, it masks our pain. And when we let go of the anger, then we're going to feel pain. So the next thing is bargaining. And, you know, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can do that. Maybe I can skip actually feeling the pain, which is the fourth step is then depression. And it's depression is really not the right word for it. Depression is a clinical condition that describes a particular thing that people go through. I don't want to call it an illness. Because illness infers that something's wrong. And I think some people can be in a depression that lasts too long that really is an illness. And I think other people can go through periods of depression that is doing exactly what it's supposed to, allowing us to clear ourselves. But I think the word can be so misunderstood that I prefer to use the, 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 the word grieving for the fourth stage. Allowing ourselves to grieve. And really, you know, I said anger is a defensive mechanism But denial, anger, and bargaining are all only there as defense against the grieving process. Because what we want to get to is acceptance, the fifth stage. And we can't get to true acceptance without processing our grief at a loss. Where that last loss is a loss of an opportunity, the loss of a friend, the loss of a piece of ourselves. I think that's what people don't realize about transitioning out of the military. What dies on some levels is the soldier, the marine, the airman, the seaman that we were. Because it's not there anymore. We may always be that in our heart. We don't wear the uniform. We don't show up and have our friends waiting for us. We have tasks now instead of missions. We, it, it will. It's one of those things like either you understand exactly what I'm saying because you've been through it or you sort of kind of think you do but you don't. And it's, it's, not, a, it's not a negative statement about anybody. It's just, I, 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 for instance, I can't understand what it's like to perform surgery on a person and save their lives by, tr by doing a heart transplant to go to a different, totally different extreme because I've never done it. I can imagine what it's like, how it must feel. But since I haven't done it, I'm not a surgeon, I can't know it. And that's what I'm saying about military. So, And that's how it is about all of the transitions that we go through. If you haven't been through it, you can't really under, you can empathize with a person. You can't really understand it. So don't be afraid of those five stages. Especially don't be afraid of grieving. It's okay to grieve. Just don't get lost in your grief. Grief, it's okay to feel like shit sometimes. 
But understand that the pain will go away. It won't go away like that. That's when you use a drug. It's temporary. It comes back as worse. Rebound effect. That happens more than one way. But it will, it will taper off. And you find acceptance. And then know this. This is what I wanted to finish with today. Spirko's 29th law of life. And the 29th law of life is your past is not a liability. Those who have achieved the most always seem to come from a life that involves struggle, poverty, or adversity. Usually it is all three. And nothing makes this like the, one of the few gifts that politicians have given to us is, is their new version of the oppression Olympics. And this is not new. This has gone on a long time. They just have a new version of it. But almost every politician wants to be Abe Lincoln, right? And I don't mean free the slaves. I mean grew up in a one-bedroom cabin and was poor and then became this great man. Like People fabricate misery in their childhood to build up the image of greatness. Why? Because most true greatness comes from people who have had that adversity. Most people who are born wealthy don't do great things. They may carry on a family legacy. They may be wonderful people. But they don't have that fire in their belly. They don't have that hunger. They don't have that desire to be something more that pushes them to a level where they do things that you didn't think they ever could do and they didn't think they could ever do. But they just wanted more. Struggle, strife, adversity, and pain are the crucible that forge truly great people into people who do truly great things. Everything in your past that was hard, everything that was painful, everything that wasn't good, there is some piece of it to be grateful for. Because it gave you who and what you are today, which can lead you to what you really seek tomorrow. This was an interesting show for me to do, guys. I really hope you got something out of it. I know there's a lot of you that have been through and continue to go through some really hard times. It's okay. It's okay to fail. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to feel like, I don't think this is ever going to end. This sucks. It's okay. It's totally okay. Can you do anything to make things a little better? Then it's okay. Do that. Because when it gets a little better, there'll be something else you can do. So then you do that. Like I said, it's like being on that obstacle course. Drill sergeant screaming at you. Pain everywhere. Fatigue everywhere. You're going on four hours of sleep for seven weeks now. All you want to do is quit. But if you just move, if you just move, you'll get to the next step. And that will make the following step 
more evident and easier. And it will lead you to somewhere better than where you are. The tenth, twelfth tenet of modern survival philosophy. What you do matters. Life can kick your ass. People can kick your ass. People can steal from you. Life can steal from you. Circumstances can steal from you. There is such a thing as a victim. You might be one. But don't you ever let anything or anyone ever, and I mean ever, take from you the understanding and the belief and the conviction that what you do matters. With that, I want to wrap things up and remind you guys, you can help support this show by doing your online shopping with tspaz.com. That's tspaz.com, tspaz.com. These are all products that I have used in my life, I spent my money on, or I wouldn't recommend them to you. And even if you buy something totally different, I don't care if you buy doggy diapers, if you start at tspaz.com, you'll support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. Today's item of the day, I, I really want to over the next couple weeks, get like all of my go-tos for Asian-style cooking out to you. Like This is something I should have done a long time ago. And a lot of research went into this stuff. Today is mirin. What is mirin? It's a cooking wine, but it's a sweet rice sake, a sweet rice wine. Um, what you'll hear people say on TV all the time, especially... Um, you know, TV celebrity chefs like Bobby Flay, who says it's it's Minin. No, Bobby, it's not Minin. There's an R in there. It's Mirin. Um, that it's sweetened sake. So you take really shitty rice wine for cooking that's like $1.49 a bottle of rice wine, and you add some corn sweetener to it, and now it's Minin, Bobby. No, Mirin, Bobby. Bobby, it's Mirin, right? Love Bobby Flay, by the way. Just one of my little, like, what is wrong with you? It's Minin. Jesus, you're... A freaking $50 million net worth TV chef. Learn how to pronounce the word. Uh, and those same chefs, they'll tell you, like, well, if you, when they're making like an Italian or a French dish with wine and you're using wine to cook with, if you wouldn't drink it, don't cook with it. Then they turn around and use $1.49 crap, corn infused rice vinegar wine to cook. Come on. Real Mirin. Here's a little lesson in cool stuff for you. Real Let's start even start with mirror. Let's start about with sake, right? Because it's just a sweet sake. So real sake is made with rice and water and maybe some salt. That's it. But there's also something called koji. This is a fungus that is cultivated on the rice. And what that does, it actually breaks the rice down. Think of it like when we make beer. We take barley, malted barley, and we heat it to a certain temperature. And we hold it there for a while and enzymes and all do their magic, and the starch converts to sugar. And then we bring it down to temperature, we take basically a big tea off of it, and then that has sugar in it, which gets fermented into beer, right? We might boil it in between, but that's the basic process. Well, what the Japanese do with rice to make sake is they use this fungus, and the fungus over time, six few days, um, breaks down the rice to simple sugars that they can be fermented by the wild yeast that are also cultivated on the rice. So all you really need is some koji and some rice, some water, maybe a little bit of salt, and then you get sake. Mirin, the way we make real mirin, is we 
use enough rice per gallon of our must, which is the, the wine before it's wine. It's the unfermented juice that we're going to separate from our rice and we're going to let it ferment out. We use enough rice that we get enough sugar in there that when the yeast is like, that's it, Dad, I can't do anymore, I'm going to die now. I have, I've killed myself with alcohol and my alcohol level is too high and I, I, I don't have it anymore, I'm done. And it, it either dies or it just goes to sleep. I, I'm out. Tags out at about 10% to 10.5%. That there is still sugar left that won't ferment. And that's why it's sweet. It's residual sugar. It's not back sweetened. And that's real mirin. And if you want to buy it online, which I do, because none of the shops around me sell real mirin. They sell it sweetened corn syrup crap. Um, Eden is the only brand like that. Now, you could say it's real, real uh, sake, but I won't believe you if I can't taste this. I call it toasted, but it's really not. But it's the only way I can describe it. There is a character to real sake from that Koji that unless it's real sake, it doesn't have it. And when I got this stuff, the first thing I did was pour a little in shot glass, about half an ounce, and drank it. I was like, I could drink this. A bit sweet for my taste, because it's supposed to be. But this is a quality product. Um, this is, uh, and I will probably uh, say this, this absolutely wrong, um, but there is a, a Japanese word for this, but it is a jino haha, or a juno haha. I don't know how to say it, right? It's a J-I-N-O hyphen H-A-H-A, like haha. And that is the that means that it is made only with koji rice, water, salt. That's it. That's what this stuff is. And hey, how about this? You know one of the great things that you need this stuff for? To make real teriyaki sauce. Because teriyaki sauce you buy in a bottle that says teriyaki sauce on it is crap. I give you I'm not gonna do it on air. I want to go ahead and wrap up today, but I give you the recipe. To make teriyaki sauce, there's only five ingredients in it, and I give you a couple variations on it. Really, really simple, and I tell you how to make it really great, a way that no one else is going to tell you how to do it. Everybody else is going to tell you to do one thing. I'm going to tell you not to do that and do something else. To find out what it is, you'll have to read the review today. Uh, it is at tspaz.com or just go to survivalpodcast.com and scroll down. And remember, everything is alphabetical, so you can find all of the Asian foods, you know, under food and cooking and barbecue under those categories as well. All right. So, oh, I also give you some recipes for some skewers and some other cool shit. So check it out today. With that, let's go ahead and talk about our song of the day today. We are in Woodstock week. And we are doing today a song from Woodstock, Joe Cocker's Something's Coming On. And this is a great song. And by one of a great artist. And it actually kind of fits today's um, show really, really well because of the, the overall message of this song. And the version of the song you're about to hear is the actual live recording from Woodstock in 1969. Right? So uh, I guess the real reason I guess we're doing this is that's 50 years ago now. 1969 is 50 years ago, right? So. Putting that whole aging thing in perspective as well. Um, but he actually changed the lyrics a bit for the version that was done uh, at Woodstock. But let me give you some of the lyrics, just the opening lyrics to it. Something's coming on. 
Don't know what it is, but it's getting stronger everywhere I go. Things are taking me a little bit longer. Feel it in my head. Something's coming on just like a rainstorm doing things to me. Turning on the things that have never been turned on. That's how you deal with transition. You realize that the things that are coming on are going to get stronger. And if you follow the path laid out for you and you do the things that you can do to build your life better, you're going to get stronger. Maybe a little stretch of those lyrics, but not that much. I mean, if you read the whole thing, it ends up going to a woman showing up, right? Then she came in like she'd been gaming. Oh, everybody else. I asked her proudly. She answered kind of loudly. Spent her life on the shelf. Scout spent her life on the shelf. Right? So you get, you can get where that's coming from, right? But when, when Cocker performed this at Woodstock, and I'm going to play the whole intro for you and everything where you hear him talking before he sings. He says something to the effect here of, this describes what's going on right now. He was pulling a little bit himself. Because he was talking about the movement that Woodstock represented it. That's getting stronger. Even though this song was very much about for one person. That's what I love about music. One song, one group of lyrics can mean ten different things depending on how you feel when you read them. And I think it's supposed to be that way. Anyway... Celebrating 50 years since Woodstock and some of the greatest music ever performed. Here we go with Joe Cocker. Something's coming on. With that, has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Joe Cocker, let's go for Sunday. And the Green Yes, yes. Well, good afternoon. And it's, uh, I know, I know all about that. Yeah, it's great to see you. All right, here's a balladeering song um, for you, the people, in your own way. This is um, just about explains the whole situation. It's called Something's Coming On. I don't know what it is, but it's getting stronger.
Song is coming on.